Hello, and welcome to Harry Potter and the Methods of Rationality, the podcast. Written by Eliezer Yudkowsky, read by Ineash Brodsky, based on the works of J.K. Rowling. In science fiction podcast news, a friend of mine, Anaya Lay, now produces the Strange Horizons podcast. The premiere episode is Inventory by Carmen Maria Machando. It's a great story and it's read beautifully by Anaya. Check it out at strangehorizons.com. There's also a link from this week's post at hpmorpodcast.com. If you like science fiction in audio format, you will not be disappointed. Second third of chapter 78. Taboo Tradeoffs Prelude Cheating Harry, having now finished his cauldron, was carefully scooping acorns into the container while the scouts searched for a nearby source of water that could be used as a liquid base. They'd come across frequent sinkholes and miniature creeks in the forest before, so it ought not to take long. Another scout had brought a straight stick that would serve as a stirrer, so Harry didn't have to transfigure one. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. How can I invoke magical powers that ought to be beyond the reach of first-year students? There was a cautionary tale the potions master had told them, with much sneers and laughter to make the stupidity seem low status instead of daring and romantic about a second-year witch in Bobatons who'd stolen some extremely restricted and expensive ingredients and tried to brew polyjuice so she could borrow the form of another girl for purposes best left unmentioned. Only she'd managed to contaminate the potion with cat hairs, and then, instead of seeking a healer immediately, the witch had hidden herself in a bathroom, hoping the effects would just wear off. And when she'd finally been found out, it had been too late to reverse the transformation completely, condemning her to a life of despair as a sort of cat-girl hybrid. Harry hadn't realized what that meant until the instant of thinking the right question. But what that implied was that a young wizard or witch could do things with potions-making that they couldn't even come close to doing with charms. Polyjuice was one of the most potent potions known. But what made Polyjuice a newt-level potion, apparently, wasn't the required age before you had enough magical power. It was how difficult the potion was to brew precisely, and what happened to you if you screwed up. Nobody in any army had tried brewing any potions up until then. But Professor Quirrell would let you get away with nearly anything if it was something you could have done in a real war. Cheating is technique, the defense professor had once lectured them. Or rather, cheating is what the losers call technique, and will be worth extra quarrel points when executed successfully. In principle, there was nothing unrealistic about transfiguring a couple of cauldrons and brewing potions out of whatever came to hand, if you had enough time before the armies met. So Harry had retrieved his copy of Magical Drafts and Potions and begun looking for a safe but useful potion he could brew in the minutes before the battle started a potion which would win the battle too fast for counterspells or produce spell effects too strong for first years to finite. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. What potion can I brew using only components gathered from an ordinary forest? Every recipe in Magical Drafts and Potions used at least one ingredient from a magical plant or animal, 
which was unfortunate because all the magical plants and animals were in the forbidden forest, not the safer and lesser woods where battles were held. Someone else might have given up at that point. Harry had turned the pages from one recipe to another, skimming faster and faster in dawning realization, confirming what he had already read and was now seeing for the first time. Every single potions recipe seemed to demand at least one magical ingredient. But why should that be true? Charms required no material component at all. You just said the words and waved your wand. Harry had been thinking about potions making as essentially analogous. Instead of your spoken syllables triggering a spell effect for no comprehensible reason, you collected a batch of disgusting ingredients and stirred four times clockwise. And that arbitrarily triggered a spell effect. In which case, given that most potions used ordinary components like porcupine quills or stewed slugs, you'd expect to see some potions using only ordinary components. But instead, every single recipe in magical drafts and potions demanded at least one component from a magical plant or animal, an ingredient like silk from an acromantula or petals from a Venus fire trap. Sometimes, even though you were looking straight at something, you didn't realize what you were looking at until you happened to ask exactly the right question. If making a potion is like casting a charm, why don't I fall over from exhaustion after brewing a draught as powerful as boil curing? The Friday before last, Harry's double potions class had brewed Potion of Boil Curing. Although even the most trivial healing charms, if you tried to cast them with wand and incantation, were at least fourth-year spells. And afterward, they'd all felt the way they usually felt after potions class. Namely, not magically exhausted to any discernible degree. Harry had shut his copy of Magical Drafts and Potions with a snap and rushed down to the Ravenclaw common room. Harry had found a seventh-year Ravenclaw doing his newt potions homework and paid the older boy a sickle to borrow most potent potions for five minutes, because Harry hadn't wanted to run all the way to the library to find confirmation. After skimming through five recipes in the seventh-year book, Harry had read the sixth recipe for a potion of fire-breathing which required Ashwinder eggs, and the book warned that the resulting fire could be no hotter than the magical fire which had spawned the Ashwinder which had laid the eggs. Harry had shouted, Eureka! right in the middle of the Ravenclaw common room and been severely rebuked by a nearby prefect who'd thought Mr. Potter was trying to cast a spell. Nobody in the wizarding world knew or cared about some ancient muggle named Archimedes, nor the Ur-Physicist's realization that the water displaced from the bathtub would equal the volume of the object entering the bathtub. Conservation Laws They'd been the critical insight in more muggle discoveries than Harry could easily count. In muggle technologies, you couldn't raise a feather one meter off the ground without the power coming from somewhere. If you looked at molten lava spilling from a volcano and asked where the heat came from, a physicist would tell you about radioactive heavy metals in the center of the Earth's molten core. If you asked where the energy to power the radioactivity came from, the physicist would point to an era before the Earth had formed and a primordial supernova in the early days of the galaxy which had baked atomic nuclei heavier than the natural limit, the supernova compressing protons and neutrons into a tight, unstable package that yielded back some of the supernova's energy when it split. A light bulb was fueled by electricity. 
fueled by a nuclear power plant, fueled by a supernova. You could play the game all the way back to the Big Bang. Magic did not appear to work like this, to put it mildly. Magic's attitude towards laws like conservation of energy was somewhere between a giant extended middle finger and a shrug of total indifference. Aquamenti created water out of nothingness so far as anyone knew. There was no known lake whose water level went down each time. That was a simple fifth-year spell, not considered impressive by wizards, because creating a mere glass of water didn't seem amazing to them. They didn't have the wacky notion that mass ought to be conserved, or that creating a gram of mass was somehow equivalent to creating 90 trillion joules of energy. There was an upper-year spell Harry had run across whose literal incantation was Arresto Momentum. And when Harry had asked if the momentum went anywhere else, he'd just gotten a puzzled look. So Harry had kept a desperate eye out for some kind of conservation principle in magic anywhere. And the whole time it had been right in front of him in every potions class. Potions making didn't create magic, it preserved magic. That was why every potion needed at least one magical ingredient. And by following instructions like, stir four times counterclockwise and once clockwise, Harry had hypothesized, you were doing something like casting a small spell that reshaped the magic in the ingredients, and unbound the physical form so that ingredients like porcupine quills dissolved smoothly into a drinkable liquid. Harry strongly suspected that a muggle following exactly the same recipe would end up with nothing but a spiny mess. That was what potions making really was, the art of transforming existing magical essences. So you were a little tired after potions class, but not much, because you weren't empowering the potions yourself. You were just reshaping magic that was already there. And that was why a second-year witch could brew polyjuice, or at least get close. Harry had kept scanning through most potent potions, looking for something that might disprove his shiny new theory. After five minutes, he'd flipped the older boy another sickle over his protests and kept going. The potion of giant strength required a re-em to trample the mashed dug bogs you stirred into the potion. It was odd, Harry had realized after a moment, because crushed dug bogs weren't strong themselves. They were just very, very crushed after the Riem got through with them. Another recipe said to touch with forged bronze, i.e. grasp a knut in pliers so you could skim the potion's surface. And if you dropped the knut all the way in, the book warned, the potion would instantly superheat and boil over the cauldron. Harry had stared at the recipes and their warnings, forming a second and stranger hypothesis. Of course, it wouldn't be as simple as potions making using magical potentials imbued in the ingredients, like muggle cars fueled by the combustion potential of gasoline. Magic would never be as sensible as that. And then Harry had gone to Professor Flitwick, since he didn't want to approach Professor Snape outside of class. And Harry had told Professor Flitwick that he wanted to invent a new potion, and he knew what the ingredients ought to be and what the potion should do, but he didn't know how to deduce the required stirring pattern. 
After Professor Flitwick had stopped screaming in horror and running in little circles, and Professor McGonagall had been called into the ensuing fierce interrogation to promise Harry that in this case it was both acceptable and important for him to reveal his underlying theory, it had developed that Harry had not made an original magical discovery, but rediscovered a law so ancient that nobody knew who had first formulated it. A potion spends that which is invested in the creation of its ingredients. The heat of goblin forges that had cast the bronze knut. The Rien's strength that had crushed the dugbogs. The magical fire that had spawned the ashwinder. All these potencies could be recalled, unlocked, and restructured by the spell-like process of stirring the ingredients in exact patterns. From a muggle standpoint, it was just odd. A deranged version of thermodynamics invented by someone who thought life ought to be fair. From a muggle standpoint, the heat expended in forging the knut hadn't gone into the bronze. The heat had left and dissipated into the environment, becoming permanently less available. Energy was conserved, could neither be created nor destroyed. Entropy always increased. But wizards didn't think that way. From their perspective, if you'd put some amount of work into making a knut, it stood to reason that you could get exactly the same work back out. Harry had tried to explain why this sounded a bit odd if you'd been raised by muggles, and Professor McGonagall had asked bemusedly why the muggle perspective was any better than the wizarding one. The fundamental principle of potions making had no name and no standard phrasing. Since then, you might be tempted to write it down, and someone who wasn't wise enough to figure out the principle themselves might read it. And they would start having all sorts of bright ideas for inventing new potions. And then they would be turned into cat girls. It had been made very clear to Harry that he wasn't going to be sharing this particular discovery with Neville, or Hermione either, after the next army's battle. Harry had tried to say something about Hermione seeming really off lately, and this being just the sort of thing that might cheer her up. Professor McGonagall had said flatly that he wasn't even to think it, and Professor Flitwick had raised his little hands and made a gesture of snapping a wand in half. Although the two professors had been kind enough to suggest that if Mr. Potter thought he knew what the potion's ingredients should be, he might be able to find an already existing recipe that did the same thing. And Professor Flitwick had mentioned several volumes in the Hogwarts library that might be useful. The vast, parchment-like screen now showed only an aerial view of the forest, from which you could barely make out the camouflaged forms of three armies, split up into two groups each, converging to fight their three-way battle. The benches of the Quidditch Stadium were now rapidly filling up with the more easily bored sort of spectator who only wanted to be there for the final battle and skip out on all the boring points along the way. If there was anything wrong with Professor Quirrell's battles, it was widely agreed it was that his spectacles didn't last nearly as long as Quidditch matches once they actually started. To this, Professor Quirrell had replied only, Such is real life. And that had been that. Within the huge window, it was all one window now, observing from a great height, the vague collections of tiny camouflaged forms grew closer. Closer. 
Almost touching. The vast white parchment window showed the first touch of battle between sunshine and chaos. A screaming mass of running children with smiley faces upon their breasts, charging forward with contigo shields held high, and others shouting, Somnium! Until one of their number shrieked, Prismatis! in a terrified voice, and the entire charge came to a sudden halt before the sparkling wall of force that had appeared in front of them. Tracy Davis had walked out from behind the trees. That's right said Tracy, her voice low and grim as she leveled her wand on the barrier. You should fear me, for I am Tracy Davis, the Dark Lady! That's Dark Lady spelled D-A-R-K-E with an E! Amelia Bones, director of the Department of Magical Law Enforcement, was sending an inquiring look at Mr. and Mrs. Davis, both of whom looked like they would have dearly preferred to die on the spot. Behind the prismatic barrier, there was some kind of hushed argument taking place among the Sunshine soldiers, one of whom in particular seemed to be getting scolded by several of the others. Then, a moment later, Tracy flinched. Susan Bones had come to the front of the Sunshine contingent. Goodness, said Augusta Longbottom. What do you suppose your grandniece has been learning at Hogwarts? I don't know, Amelia Bones said calmly but I shall owl her a chocolate frog and instruct her to learn more of it. The prismatic barrier vanished. The sunshine soldiers resumed their charge forward. Tracy yelled, her voice high with strain, Implemare! And the sunshine charge came to another sudden halt as a line of fire blazed up between them in the half-dry grass, extending to follow the path of Tracy's wand as she pointed it. An instant later, Susan Bones cried, Finite incantatum! And the flames dimmed, brightened, dimmed in the contest of their wills, other soldiers raising their wands to aim at Tracy. And that was when Neville Longbottom plunged, shrieking out of the sky. One of the dragon warriors, Raymond Arnold, made a hand sign, pointing forward and obliquely left and there was a sudden hushed hiss of whispers among the Dragon Army contingent as they all quietly reoriented themselves in the direction of the enemy. The Sunnies knew they were there. Of course, both armies knew. But somehow, in this moment, they had all become instinctively quiet. The dragons crept forward further, and then further, the dull camouflaged forms of the Sunnies beginning to appear among the distant trees. And still, nobody spoke. Nobody bellowed the call to charge. Draco was now at the forefront of his soldiers, Vincent behind him and Padma only a shade further back. If the three of them could take the shock of Sunshine's best, the rest of Dragon Army might stand a chance. Then Draco saw one Sunny staring at him from the distance, in the vanguard of her own army, staring at him with a look of fury. Across the forest battleground, their eyes met. Draco had only a fraction of a second to wonder, in the back of his mind, what Hermione Granger was so angry about, before the shout went up from both their armies, and they were all running forward to the charge, himself and Granger on a direct collision course for each other. The other Chaotix had appeared now from among the trees. Some had dropped out of trees. 
and the battle was in full force now, everyone firing in every direction at anything that looked like an enemy. Plus, a number of Sunnies crying, Luminos! at Neville Longbottom as the Chaos Hufflepuff twisted and rocketed up through the air on courses that could only be described as, indeed, chaotic. And it happened, the way it happened only one time out of twenty in mock aerial combat, that Neville Longbottom's broomstick glowed bright red beneath his clenched hands. It should have meant that Longbottom was out of the game. Then, in the Hogwarts stands, among the watching crowds of students, a scream went up. Combat realism. It was Professor Quirrell's one master rule. You could get away with anything if it was realistic. And in real life, a soldier didn't just vanish when their broomstick got hit by a curse. Neville was falling toward the ground and screaming, Chaotic landing. And the Chaotics were wrenching their attention away from fights to cast the hover charm and run at the same time so they wouldn't be sitting ducks, almost everyone else stopping to gape. And Neville Longbottom slammed into the leaf-laden forest ground, landing on one knee, one foot, and both hands, as though he were kneeling down to be knighted. Everything stopped. Even Tracy and Susan paused in their duel. In the stadium, all crowd noises vanished. There was a universal silence composed of astonishment, concern, and sheer, dumbstruck, gaping awe as everyone waited to see what would happen next. And then Neville Longbottom slowly rose to his feet and leveled his wand, still in hand, at the Sunshine Soldiers. Though nobody on the battlefield heard it, a large segment of the stadium audience had begun chanting in steady, rising notes each time the word was uttered, because you just couldn't see that and not think it required musical accompaniment. The crowd is cheering your grandson, said Amelia Bones. The old witch was favoring the screen with a measuring look. So they are, said Augusta Longbottom. Some, if I hear correctly, are cheering. Our blood for Neville, our souls for Neville. Quite said Amelia, taking a sip from a teacup which had not been there moments earlier. It shows the lad has leadership potential. These cheers, continued Augusta, her voice taking on an even more stunned quality, seem to be coming from the Hufflepuff benches. It is the house of the loyal, my dear. Albus Percival Wolfric Brian Dumbledore, what in Merlin's name has been happening in this school? Lucius Malfoy was watching the screens with an ironic smile, his fingers tapping at his armrest in no discernible pattern. I do not know what is more frightening, the thought that he has some hidden plan behind all this, or the thought that he does not. Look! cried the Lord of Greengrass. The dapper young man had risen half out of his chair, pointing his finger at the screen. There she goes. We'll both take him at once, Daphne whispered. She knew that a few fear-filled minutes of real combat experience, a handful of times each week, might not be enough to match Neville's regular dueling practice with Harry and Cedric Diggory over the same period. He's too much for one of us, but both of us together. I'll use my charm, you just try to stun him. Hannah, beside her, nodded. And then they both screamed at the top of their lungs and charged forward the hover charms of two supporting sunshine soldiers moving them faster and making them light on their feet. Daphne already crying, Tonight! 
even as Hannah kept a huge contigo shield moving in front of them, and with a brief extra lift they leapt over the heads of the front screen of soldiers and landed in front of Neville with their hair billowing high around them. Photographs were strictly prohibited at all Hogwarts games, but somehow this moment still ended up on the front page of the next day's quibbler. And in the same instant, because fighting older bullies had burned away the slightest traces of hesitation, Hannah fired her first sleep hacks at Neville. She'd started the incantation while she was still in the air. Even as Daphne, concentrating more on speed than on force, slashed down with her ancient blade at where she thought Neville's thighs would be after he dodged. But Neville leapt up, not sideways. Leapt up higher than he should have been able to go, so that her glowing sword cut only the air beneath his feet. Somehow Daphne realized what it meant, that Neville still had other Chaotix hovering him, in time for her to raise her blade up over her head. But Neville fell too fast, and when his blade smashed into hers, it was like being hit by a bludger. It knocked Daphne off her feet and sent her sprawling backward onto the grass, hitting the ground hard on her back. It might have been all over for her then if Neville hadn't landed too hard himself and gone to his knees with a pained gasp. And then, before Neville could bring his glowing blade down, Hannah shouted, Somnium! And Neville lurched frantically backward, though of course no spell had actually come from Hannah's wand. The Hufflepuff girl couldn't really have fired again that fast, which gave Daphne a second to scramble to her feet and get both hands around her wand again. Dear Merlin, said Lady Greengrass. Her voice seemed unsteady, the aristocratic poise well punctured. My daughter is fighting with the charm of the most ancient blade in her first year. I never knew she possessed such extraordinary talent. Excellent blood, Charles Knott said approvingly, causing Augusta to snort. My good lady, said Professor Quirrell, sounding grave. Do not wrong your daughter so. That is not mere talent which you see. That is what happens when young wizards and witches put their competitive efforts into a game which, unlike Quidditch or Exploding Snap, involves, to put it bluntly, actual spellcasting. Expelliarmus! shouted Draco, trying not to let his voice crack as he simultaneously dodged the blazing red stun bolt that Hermione Granger had fired at him, his muscles twisting with the need to dodge in the wrong direction. She'd pointed to his left, and then, with a mysterious twitch, fired right. Hermione dodged the fast-moving dueling hex and cried with hardly another moment's pause, Stellius! A wide-angle hex that Draco couldn't avoid, but he managed to point his wand at his own face and cry, Quesicus, before the sudden urge to inhale could devolve into a sneezing fit that would have ended the battle. Draco Malfoy was already half-exhausted from all the locking charms and transfigurations earlier, but his confusion was beginning to give way to a sense of his own blood boiling. He didn't know why Granger was attacking him so angrily all of a sudden, but if she wanted a fight, he'd give her one. The dragons and sunnies weren't stopping to watch the duel of their generals. The dragons were too disciplined to stop and watch, and that meant the sunnies had to go on fighting too. But the gaping audience in the Hogwarts Quidditch stands were being distracted even from Neville and Daphne's spectacle, 
shifting their eyes to the duel of two generals as Malfoy and Granger fired hex after hex and jinx after jinx at each other, casting more rapidly than any other student in their year could have managed. The Dragon General's trained dueling dance matched by the Sunshine General's frantic energy. The combat between them beginning to resemble an adult duel, as the two most magically powerful first years resorted to spells more exotic than the usual sleep hex. Although, Draco was beginning to realize, when he and Harry and Professor Quirrell had dismissed Miss Granger as having as much intent to kill as a bowl of wet grapes, they'd never seen her angry. Daphne lashed out with her ancient blade, again not trying to hit hard, but just moving the blade as fast as possible. At the same time, Hannah cried, Somnium! and Neville leapt back again. But it had been another bluff, and Hannah was moving in to fire a real spell almost point-blank. And Neville Longbottom did exactly what, he would explain afterward, Cedric Diggory had trained him to do if he was fighting Bellatrix Black which was to spin around and kick Hannah really hard in the pit of her stomach. The Hufflepuff girl made a sad little sound, a gasping cry of pain, as she was knocked off her feet by the hard shoe sinking into her abdomen with the force of Neville's whole body behind it. For an instant, the battlefield stood still. Everything halted except Hannah's falling form. Then Neville's face turned to absolute dismay and he lowered his wand, the chaotic lieutenant starting instinctively toward his housemate as he reached for her with his other hand. Even as Hannah turned her fall into a roll and came out with her wand raised and shot him. A fractional second later, Daphne, who hadn't hesitated either, sank her most ancient blade squarely into Neville's back causing the chaotic lieutenant's muscles to jerk convulsively with the stunning magic discharging into him even as Hannah's sleep hacks took effect. And then the last sign of Longbottom was sprawled still on the ground with a look of total surprise frozen to his face. Today, Mr. Longbottom has learned a valuable lesson about his feelings of pity and remorse, said Professor Quirrell. And chivalry, said Amelia, sipping her tea again. Are you all right? whispered Daphne as she stood protectively over where Hannah lay on the ground clutching her stomach. The girl didn't give anything back in reply except for more retching sounds that sounded like Hannah was trying not to throw up while trying not to cry. Somehow, even though it might not have been good tactics... It would have been better if Hannah had been hexed outright than for other soldiers to be tied up protecting her. A number of sunnies seemed to be standing in front of Hannah with their wands clutched tightly, staring angrily at the chaotix. Someone had thrown up a prismatic barrier between the two groups. Daphne couldn't see who. And for some reason, the chaotix didn't seem to be pressing the attack. Even Tracy had completely dropped the grim look on her face and was shifting her weight nervously from one foot to another as though she was having trouble remembering which side she was on. Hold! shouted a voice. Hold battle! There wasn't much battle going on anyway, but it held. General Potter, looking every inch the boy who lived, strode out from the trees with something large and camouflage cloth covered held under one arm. Is Miss Abbott breathing all right? Daphne didn't look back. She didn't trust that this wasn't a trap. 
it was absolutely certain that if the Chaotix took the opportunity to attack, Professor Coral would not only rule it legal, but would also award them extra points afterward. But Daphne could hear the answer well enough with her ears. It wasn't like Hannah was trying to breathe quietly, and so she said, Sort of. She should get out of here, and to someone who can use healing charms, just in case that broke something. From behind Daphne, a small, gasping voice said, I can still fight. Miss Abbott, don't! Harry said, just as there was the sound from behind Daphne of someone collapsing back to the grass after trying and failing to get to her feet. Everyone winced, but Daphne didn't turn her back on Harry. Why haven't the teachers stopped the battle? Said Susan, her voice angry. I expect it's because Miss Abbott is in no danger of permanent damage and Professor Quirrell thinks we're learning valuable lessons. Look, Miss Abbott, if you go, Tracy will also retire from the battle. You already outnumber us, so that's a very good deal for your side. Please take it. Hannah, just go. I mean, just say you're out. When Daphne glanced back, she saw that Hannah was shaking her head, still curled up in a ball on the grass. Oh, screw this! Chaotix! The faster we stun them, the faster she's out of here! We're going to do this very quickly, even if we take casualties! End truce! Tuna fish! Daphne's political hindbrain had only an instant to admire how Harry's few words had just made the Chaotix the good guys. And then, in almost perfect unison, the Chaotix were plunging their hands into the pockets of their uniforms and drawing out green sunglasses in an unfamiliar style. Not like anything you would wear to the beach, more like goggles for advanced potions. Then, Daphne realized what was about to happen and snapped up her other hand to shield her eyes, just as Harry ripped the cloth off the cauldron. The fluid that spilled forth as Harry Potter threw the cauldron's contents into the air was too bright to be seen, too brilliant to be imagined, incandescent like the sun magnified a dozen times. Which was exactly what it was. The sunlight which had been invested to create the acorns, the bright energy that had fueled a tree rising up from the bare dirt. Blazing a searing purple, the color of the mixed blue and red wavelengths that chlorophyll absorbed, with almost none of the green wavelengths that chlorophyll reflected to create the green color of leaves, which was the color of Chaos Legion's sunglasses, made to pass through green wavelengths blocking red and blue, reducing even the most incandescent purple glare to something bearable. The violet light blazed on and on. Daphne tried dropping her arms from her eyes, but found she couldn't look directly at anything. Even the second-hand purple glare was so bright she had to squint. And she had only time to cry one finita incantatum, which didn't work, before a sleep hex took her. What was left of the battle didn't take very long after that. Now! bellowed Blaze Sabini, formerly of Sunshine, now commanding a detachment of Chaos Legionnaires. I mean, tuna fish! The Slytherin boy's hand grasped the cloth, shielding the cauldron from the triggering touch of daylight, already beginning to move it aside. Now! bellowed Dean Thomas, formerly of Chaos, commanding a consignment of dragon warriors. Do whatever they do! 
The chaotix of Zabini's detachment plunged their hands into their uniform pockets and came forth bearing green sunglasses. An action almost perfectly mirrored by Dean and the Dragon Warriors, who drew forth green-colored potions goggles and quickly drew the straps over their own heads, even as the chaotix put on their sunglasses and the violet incandescence blasted forth. As General Malfoy had explained, if Mr. Goyle reported that the Chaos Legion was wearing green-colored potions goggles, you didn't have to know why to transfigure some copies. That's cheating! shrieked Blaze the Beanie. That's technique! Dragons! Charge! Pardon me, could you stop laughing like that, Mr. Quirrell? said Lady Greengrass. It's unnerving. Finite their goggles! shouted Blaze the Beanie as the two armies ran headlong toward each other through omnipresent eye-searing purple glare. We can still win! You heard him! bellowed Dean Thomas. Get their glasses! Blaze the Beanie's reply to this wasn't anything articulate. That battle went on a lot longer. End second third of chapter 78 Thank you to the following people. Hermione Granger, Anonymous. Daphne Greengrass, Josie Cotton. Casey Davis was voiced by Luppy. Hannah Abbott, Mars. Lauren Housley as Susan Bones. Lady Greengrass by Paula. Amelia Bones by Melissa Kessler. Lucius Malfoy, voiced by Martek Tex. Augusta Longbottom by Sabrina Seaver. This chapter's original text, production notes, and attribution links, along with archives and much more, can be found at hpmorpodcast.com. If you would like to learn more about the art of rationality, please visit lesswrong.com, an online community of aspiring rationalists founded by Eliezer Yudkowsky. Some sound effects used are courtesy of the Free Sound Project. The music used is Catch That Goblin by Skaven. Thank you for listening, and come back next week for the conclusion to Chapter 78, Taboo Tradeoff's Prelude, Cheating.